What's up, family? You are tuned into Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. From KPFA Radio and the Pacifica Network, I'm your host, Kat Brooks. 52 Bay Area schools are facing lawsuits from students who say they were sexually abused by their teacher and the school did nothing to protect them. We are joined this morning by Sophia Balag, a reporter for the San Francisco Chronicle who published three investigative pieces this week uncovering the depth of sexual abuse scandals in these Bay Area schools. Good morning, Sophia. Good morning, Kat. Thanks so much for joining us. Sophia, take us back to 2020 and the law that makes this possible. Help me understand how we got there. Yeah, so this is a law that lawmakers, it took effect at the start of 2020, and it was passed the year before by lawmakers in the state legislature. And essentially, it did two things. It extended the deadline for uh, when people have to file lawsuits alleging child sexual abuse. Um, The previous deadline people had to file uh, by the time they were 25, and this new law extended that deadline for most people to uh, age 40. The law also did another important thing that really led to this flood of lawsuits that we reported on in our in our stories, which is that it opened um, a three-year window, what's sometimes called a look-back window, that essentially said that for three years from the start of 2020 to the end of 2022, People could file lawsuits alleging child sexual abuse regardless of when the alleged abuse occurred. So that meant that child-serving institutions like the Catholic Church, um, Boy Scouts, uh, public schools, private schools, lots of different institutions um, started getting claims um, alleging abuse by their employees um, dating all the way back to the 60s in some cases. Um, And so there was all of a sudden this flood of cases from a wide range of states, particularly um, ones from, you know, the 60s and 70s and 80s um, of of people who are coming forward to allege that um, adults who worked for these institutions had abused them. And, and to that point, like, we've heard a lot about the Boy Scouts actually reported on, on the show. We've heard a lot about Catholic institutions not so much about the schools. Why haven't they had the same level of attention as these other institutions? Yeah, I, uh, this is part of the reason we really wanted to do this investigation. I think you're absolutely right. There has been so much more attention on the church and the Boy Scouts. Um, and I think a lot of that is because there are a lot more cases against the Boy Scouts and the Catholic Church. Um, and because those organizations are so large, they interact with a lot of different children and have for, you know, decades. And so there's, um, you know, just a lot, there's a lot of claims against priests and scout leaders alleging misconduct. Um, There's so many claims against um, several dioceses in California that several of them have filed for bankruptcy. put sort of things in perspective, the Archdiocese of San Francisco filed for bankruptcy while facing about 500 of these lawsuits against it. Um, In contrast, um, you know, public school districts have faced um, comparatively fewer lawsuits. Our review, which attempted 
to capture all of the uh, lawsuits that were filed alleging this type of abuse in the last six months of last year at, in five different Bay Area counties. We found uh, 52 lawsuits that sort of met those criteria. So we're talking about, um, from at least from my reporting, a smaller sort of sample size. Um, the experts I talked to said that child abuse in public schools is very rare, um, but certainly when it happens, it is terrible. Um, and unlike these some of these private institutions that have gotten um, some more um, scrutiny and attention for these lawsuits, the public schools um, are, you know, if they, if there's a judgment or a settlement that requires them to pay money to alleged victims, um, that's going to come out of public funds. And so there's this sort of additional layer of public scrutiny that I think, um, you know, public institutions uh, get and, and should get. That's a good segue to two follow-up questions, because you also talk in your article about some of the reasons that school, administra school administrators may not want to shine a light on this issue, right? They know about it, but they're like, eh, we're not going to deal with this. Can you talk about that? Yeah. In most of the cases that we reviewed, there were uh, specific complaints that the plaintiffs alleged they made or their parents made or other teachers made to school administrators or to other adults at the school that were ignored or mishandled. Um, and so that's a, that was a, a pretty striking common thread among uh, most of these lawsuits. Um, and then even in uh, the lawsuits where there wasn't an explicit um, allegation that like a student had gone to a teacher or a principal um, alleging misconduct, um, that there were uh, red flags that were missed, like teachers slow dancing with students at school dances or holding hands with students in the halls or driving students um, home after school. Um, and I spoke with a number of uh, experts who study uh, child sexual abuse, including abuse in schools. Um, and they told me that that can be common and it's, it's because the consequences to a school or any institution that uh, is, you know, accused of allowing a, a teacher or an administrator to harm students, um, that can be really damaging to a school's reputation. Um, if there's even an investigation and word gets out, that can just be really harmful to an institution's reputation. So there's an incentive to not, um, you know, cause that harm and to sort of brush things under the rug. And then another, you know, common thing that's alleged in a number of these lawsuits and that experts I talked to said is, you know, can be common, is that I think it's hard for um, an adult who is, you know, not being abused by this teacher or this administrator um, to look at their coworker who they might have a good relationship with, they see every day, you know, um, in, in the hallways, in the lunchroom. Um, and it's just hard to believe that someone is doing something so awful, especially someone that you may like. And so that's another common thread in some of these lawsuits that the teachers were alleged to be well-liked in the school community. And so when students came forward with allegations that they had been abused, um, people didn't want to believe that of these 
beloved members of the communities. And so these students, in some cases, were really just brushed aside, they allege. I mean, let's illustrate that with a story. If you could walk our listeners through what happened to young boys um, in 1972 at Crocker Highlands Elementary in Oakland. Yeah, so I believe that's the the case where, um, so there's a man who's suing Crocker Highlands Elementary who alleges that when he was about 10, um, he and his friend, who was also about 10, were driven from school by a student teacher to the student teacher's house um, where he forced them to perform sex acts. And then when they got to school the next day, they decided they were going to tell an administrator. Um, this is according to their, their lawsuit that they filed in Alameda County Court last year. And they alleged that they uh, tried to talk to the principal about what had happened. And they ended up talking to the principal's uh, uh, assistant or receptionist. Um, and they, they told her that the teacher had taken them to his house and done inappropriate things. And they said there was no follow-up. And then the teacher repeated the same behavior with them the next week. Um, And then I found a a separate lawsuit filed by a different man with a different legal team alleging that the uh, same teacher ended up teaching at a different elementary school in Oakland, Jefferson Elementary, uh, four years later, um, and molested him as well. Um, And so... This is a case where there is alleged to have been an explicit complaint about this teacher at one school. Um, Allegedly nothing was done. And then he went on to a different school where a completely separate person who's, as far as I can tell, not connected at all to the original man who is suing um, is also alleging that the same teacher was able to abuse him there. You're listening to Law and Disorder. I'm your host Kat Brooks in conversation with Sophia Balaga, reporter for the San Francisco Chronicle, who's just published three investigative pieces uncovering the depth of sexual abuse scandals in Bay Area schools. I should have done this trigger warning before we started. I know a lot of parents drive and listen to the show with their kids in the car. So if you're just tuning in, um, just note that we are talking about cases of sexual assault involving children. Um, And you may want to tune out until 8.30. Um, Sophia, you mentioned grooming in relationship to one of the cases you cover in the articles. What is that and how is it commonly used in pop culture versus what you discovered in your research? Yeah, so grooming is a, uh, a, a set of behaviors that are essentially designed to um, allow an adult to abuse a child. Um, sometimes that can look like an adult befriending a child and sort of gradually becoming more and more flirtatious or sexual so that the, the child um, or the minor, in some cases, um, these, the, I should note that the range of ages of the um, alleged victims range in age from four years old to 17 years old. So um, this is alleged abuse of, of children spanning a wide age range. Um, but essentially grooming is the, the practice of sort of convincing a child to accept sexual abuse. Um, 
and the term grooming groomer is thrown around a lot on social media and in, you know, sometimes casual conversations nowadays in a way that really is not uh, backed up by facts and information. And so part of what we wanted to show in our reporting is what grooming and sexual abuse actually looks like in schools because it's understandably um, an area where parents and other adults have a lot of concern um, because it's awful when it happens in schools. And so we really wanted to provide accurate, detailed information about what it really looks like in schools um, because I think a lot of the information that's out there, like a lot of stuff that you see on social media, it lacks the kind of context um, and detail that you need to really understand an issue. And I think it's important to note here that um, in some of these cases, when you're talking about grooming, that can include the parents too. Um, the the causer of harm, getting the parents comfortable with them being in the presence of their child, um, which is a particular yeah. dynamic when you're talking about your, your kid's student uh, I mean, your yeah, your kid's teacher. Excuse me, um, mm-hmm. Sophia. Talk about Jane Doe too, former student at Miramonte High. Yeah, so Jane Doe too is one of three former Miramonte students who are suing Akalani's Union High School District, which is the school district that encompasses Miramonte and Arinda, um, and. Jane Doe 2 alleges that she was groomed and then assaulted by her English teacher. Um, And she says that she went to a school counselor um, and told the counselor that she had heard that this English teacher had raped another student the year before and that Uh, She was concerned that he was behaving the same way with her and that he might sexually assault her as well. And she says that her complaint was not appropriately investigated, um, according to her. um, I spoke with her about this, but she also alleges this in her lawsuit um, that the counselor said, oh, I asked the teacher if he had had inappropriate sexual relations with a student and he said no. Um, so seems like it's fine was essentially what she says the counselor told her. And she told me that that really made her feel unsafe. She said she felt like she was the only adult, um, in the situation at that point, because this teacher was following her to her classes, writing her, uh, inappropriate flirtatious notes, um, you know, singling her out for like attention that made her kind of uncomfortable and uh, that other teachers and administrators at the school weren't doing anything even after she explicitly complained. Um, And her saying she felt like the only adult was really striking to me because she was 17 at the time and was, of course, not an adult at all. Um, So she is suing with two other women, um, both of whom allege that this English teacher raped them. He was actually convicted of um, sexually abusing the the third woman. Um, And so he, you know, does have a a criminal conviction related to 
these out some of the allegations in this lawsuit. Um, but that's another example of a case where a student says that they went to an administrator and were essentially brushed off. If these lawsuits are successful, how much in potential dollars are school districts looking uh, at at putting out? And what does that mean for their insurance? What's happening there? It, it means a lot in potential payouts. So um, the cases that I looked at for this particular investigation, the 52 that were filed in this six-month uh, window in these five Bay Area counties, um, they are all... Um, as far as I can tell, at least still in process. So they haven't been settled. They haven't gone to trial. Um, but there are some cases that have gone to trial and have or have been settled uh, since this law was passed in 2019. And in some cases, the payouts have been really high, sometimes in the low millions. Um, I, I mentioned one case uh, involving two students who allege that a teacher abused them at a Bay Area school and uh, a jury found the school to be liable for, um, I believe it was $102 million for those two women. Um, I believe that case is still being appealed, so I don't think the school has actually had to pay that money yet, um, although all these cases are still in process, so it's always possible that um, something has been updated since um, you know we last checked just before publishing earlier this week. But... Um, that is the type of judgment that you could see in many of these cases. Now, like I said, all of these cases I'm talking about have not been fully adjudicated. There hasn't been a finding of guilt or innocence um, or of liability, but um, potentially these lawsuits could result in hundreds of millions of dollars in payouts um, that schools will be required to make to students. Um, and insurance costs for schools are already going up. Um, I know one school finance expert said that um, for the schools he has worked with and seen, um, insurance costs have gone up, uh, I believe, three to six times. Um, and so it's already having a financial burden on these schools and a financial impact. Um, and it's one of the reasons that uh, public school districts and organizations that represent uh, public school districts or people who uh, do financing for public schools and um, sort of insurance, uh, like risk pools, are some of the most vehement opponents of um, the efforts in the legislature to expand these laws that allow um, people to sue over these claims because they can have a really significant financial impact on schools. And you're talking about, I mean, we cover school budgets on the show all the time. You're talking about schools that are already strapped, right, with underpaid teachers and not enough resources for students. So this, this could have um, a massive impact on the quality of education that our children get. Um, Sophia, what do you, what do you think the, the survivors in this situation want from these prosecutions? The, I mean, they're, they're no, most of them, right, they're out of school. Um, mm -hmm. is, is this a piece of addressing trauma? Is this like closure for some of the survivors? Yeah. And I should, I should note that all of the, for all of the lawsuits that we wrote about in our investigation, all of the former students are now adults. 
um, although they range in age from like their early 20s into their, um, I believe, maybe 70s is kind of the upper upper limit. Um, but there are um, people of all ages, and I've talked to, um, in in some cases, um, alleged victims who are who are even older than that. Um, but um, essentially, what the ones I've talked to have said they're looking for, they are all seeking financial compensation for, um, you know, the, the harm they've been caused to cover, you know, medical bills that many of them say they've incurred as a result, like therapy bills, but also, um, you know, for other medical conditions that they might have as a result of the abuse that they suffered. Um, but pretty much everyone I, I talk to also talks about how, they want to come forward with their story to let other survivors know that they're not alone. Um, mm. In in many cases, when I talk to people who are survivors of child sexual assault, they tell me that they were inspired to come forward because they saw someone else doing that. Either somebody else, um, you know, who uh, was abused by the same adult. Um, I talked to two women who were sort of in that boat. One came forward, and then the other learned about her lawsuit and decided to come forward about the same teacher as well. Um, but other times people will mention, um, you know, like the, the gymnasts from USA Gymnastics who very publicly came forward about um, their former doctor, Larry Nassar, um, and, uh, you know, just the impact that that had on many different assault victims, even ones who were not uh, abused in a gymnastics context or by the same guy. Um, I think was really profound and a lot of people came forward as a result of that public testimony. So that's one reason a lot of people want to come forward. They want to share their stories and help other people. Um, and then I would say the third big reason is they really want to hold the schools that they say looked the other way while they were being abused accountable. So it doesn't happen to more kids. Um, and they really want to push schools to update their policies um, to update their trainings for teachers and staff and students so that there is a clear way to report misconduct and to investigate it um, in a way that um, stops abuse early or prevents it from happening in the first place. All right, Sophia, we've got to leave it there. Thank, as a survivor, thank you for your, your deep attention um, to this issue and for the, the, the care you took with publishing these articles and for coming Thanks on the show. So much for, Thanks so much for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. You've been listening to Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. That's it for this episode, family. You can find more information about topics and guests in this episode's show notes. Law and Disorder is produced at KPFA. That's listener-supported radio on the Pacifica Network. The show is produced by Jesse Strauss and hosted by me, Kat Brooks. Our theme music was composed by Steve Raskin of Fort Knox 5. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis, that's D-I-S, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Feel free to holler at us about something you heard or send us a show idea at lawanddisorder at kpfa.org. You can also find our content live at 8 a.m. weekdays on KPFA. That's 94.1 FM in the Bay Area. Our show and all of KPFA's programs are funded exclusively by you, the listener. And if you're in a position to support us, please donate today at kpfa.org. 
Take care of yourself and take care of each other. We all we got, fam.